0: Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we're going to be talking about the case of Rodney Alcala, also known as the dating game killer. So Rodney Alcala was a serial killer. Yes, I have another serial killer case for you today. And like I said, he was known as the dating game killer. And I think that is what this case is infamous for. I mean, of course it is. But at the same time, I also wouldn't be surprised if you've never heard of him. Because even though he is a pretty big serial killer, he's one of those serial killers that not many people know about. Rodney mainly operated out of California and New York, and he was on the loose at the same time as other notorious serial killers, like the Hillside Stranglers and the Son of Sam. And I'm sure you all have heard of the Hillside Stranglers and the Son of Sam. And this is why Rodney Alcala went under the radar for so long because of those serial killers, because everyone was talking about those serial Serial killers. Everyone was looking for them. So Rodney Alcala was just able to go about doing whatever he wanted, and no one even suspected that there was another serial killer about. And oh my god, Rodney is linked to so many murders. He hasn't been convicted of all of them, which is probably why he's not the most well-known serial killer, but he was suspected of committing up to 130 murders and if he was convicted of all of those murders if he was linked to that many that would mean he is the most prolific serial killer in u.s history oh and on top of all of this rodney actually went on tv as a contestant for the dating game show hence the name the dating game killer and it turns out his appearance on the dating game show took place right in the middle of his killing spree. I just can't believe it. I honestly can't. He was there on TV doing the whole dating game show thing, trying to be this charming, charismatic, funny guy. And the whole time he was hiding a massive secret was that he was a serial killer. He was an active serial killer which is just so so scary and obviously we're going to get into the whole dating game show and the contestants and yeah all of that and this case was in the news right up until last year because that is when rodney alcala died in prison and also since i first covered this case on youtube they've actually decided to turn this case into a movie but anyway i'll talk a bit more about that at the end because we have a lot to get through on this one so let's just dive in So Rodney was born on the 23rd of August, 1943, which means that he was a Virgo. Leo cusp, but, but he's still a Virgo. And I just wanna to apologize to every single Virgo watching this right now, because I've done more Virgos than any other star sign. And when I found out his birthday, I was like, oh my God, are you being serious right now? We have another Virgo. But then I got to thinking, I have actually personally known more Virgos than any other star sign. So then I was thinking, is there just more Virgos in the world? And it turns out that there are more Virgos in the world. September is actually the most popular birth month. And I know you can get Libra at the end of September, but, but you know what I mean. Clearly people like to get down and day at Christmas and New Year. But getting back to the story, Rodney was born in San Antonio, Texas, where he lived with his parents, his brother and his two sisters. And then when Rodney was eight years old, Rodney's father moved the whole family to Mexico because Rodney's grandmother was ill and she wanted to live her final years in. Mexico and I don't actually know I couldn't find out when his grandmother did pass away but she did Um, and it was in like a three-year period of them being in Mexico and then after being in Mexico for three years Rodney's dad just packed up and left. Don't know why, but, but he did. And this clearly did leave a lasting impact on Rodney as it would anyone. So then following the dad walking out, Rodney, his mom, his two sisters moved back to LA and they settled in Monterey Park, which from what I understand is like just a suburb of LA. From this moment on, actually had a pretty stable upbringing. I know, shocker, right? Normally there's like something significant. I mean, obviously his father leaving walking out is obviously significant, but he had quite an affu... I can never say that word, affluent. Oh my God, you know what I mean. He had quite a stable upbringing. He even went to private school and he was just described as a very kind, very respectful boy. And he was also, this is a common theme, isn't it? He was also highly intelligent. And yeah, that's pretty much it. There's nothing really significant, nothing that stands out in Rodney's childhood or teenage years. And then after finishing school, Rodney did join the army. I don't really think he had aspirations himself to join the army. He was just following in the footsteps of his older brother who was also in the army. And Rodney was in the army for about three years. He was a clerk. He didn't see any frontline action, anything like that. But however, he did get into trouble a few times for going AWOL. And Rodney was medically discharged from the army for mental health reasons. As it said that Rodney had a nervous breakdown. Don't really know what caused this. I couldn't really find out. It's not really documented. And it was also around this time that he was diagnosed with a personality disorder. And he did spend some time in hospital for this. And then he did return home. He did return back to LA. And it said that once he returned home, his mental health did actually improve. I don't know if he was on medication. I'm gonna say he wasn't, because I feel like if he was, I would have been able to find out. Um, But maybe it was just getting out of the army, going home, living back with his mom, made his mental health better. I don't know. So then when he was back home, uh, he decided to enroll into a university. And he did enroll into the UCLA Fine Arts program. And he was a photography major, which creeps me out now, you'll find out, but he uses his photography in a very creepy way. Definitely part of his MO. And also remember that I said that Rodney was very intelligent. Well, his IQ was somewhere between 160 and 170. And it's actually one of the highest IQs of serial killers. And it puts him in the same kind of league as Ted Kaczynski, who is again, one of the most intelligent serial killers. Ted Kaczynski is the Unabomber, if you didn't know. I think his IQ was like 167 or something like that. So hopefully that gives you like a rough idea of how intelligent he is. It's it's scary when people are that intelligent. And it's currently 1968 at this point and Rodney is aged 25. And when he was 25, this is when he graduated UCLA. And then it's also in 1968 when Rodney is 25 that he commits his first known crime. However, given the type of criminal that Rodney is and also the fact that he is 25, there is nothing in this world that will convince me that this is actually his first crime. And also he's 25 at this point. Criminals like Rodney that commit the crimes that he is going to, don't start at the age of 25. People like Rodney start committing crime and start committing serious crime from a very young age and they slowly progress, or sometimes they quickly progress, but it starts at a lot younger age than 25. So this is his first known crime, but let's be realistic, it's not. Anyway, this is the first time that Rodney comes onto the police's radar. So Rodney was spotted by another motorist um, because he was trying to lure a young girl into his car. And this young girl was Tally Shapiro and she was only eight years old. And the motorist that was watching this go down instantly knew like, this is weird. Like something is wrong. And then he also noticed that Rodney's car didn't have any plates on it, which sent off like alarm bells, like ding, 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 this is not right. And you know what, thank God for this motorist. That is just what I want to say because he does come up later on in the story. So straight away, this motorist phones the police. He's like, uh, there's this dodgy man. He's trying to get this girl in his car. I'm following him right now back to his apartment. He gets to the apartment, so he knows the address, so he can tell the police. So the police, because of this motorist, are actually able to arrive at the scene pretty quickly. So they knock on Rodney's door. I personally think they should break it down, but I get they have to go through the procedures. They probably don't have the grounds right now to break down his door. So they knock on the door. Rodney actually, he doesn't come, he does come to the door, but he says through the door like, oh, hang on, I've just got out the shower. I just need to get dressed. And Rodney just keeps delaying them. He keeps like trying to put them off coming in. So the police are like, "Uh, okay, this is not right. We need to break down the door now. And thank God they didn't wait any longer because when they broke down the door, What they saw was just an absolutely horrific scene. There was a young girl on the floor and she was in a pool of blood. And immediately the police that were at the scene thought there is no way that this girl is still alive because of how much blood is on the floor. And this little girl is Tali Shapiro. And not only is she in a pool of blood and they think that she's not alive, she has also been beaten quite badly and also raped. There was a metal like pole thing over her neck and this was used in an attempt to strangle her, but thankfully the police did manage to arrive in time. Thank God they actually broke down the door. Even though she had suffered an absolutely horrendous ordeal, I can't even imagine, thankfully she was still alive. The police quickly searched the apartment, but they realized that the man that had committed this absolutely horrific act was nowhere to be found. And the police did make the decision, of course, to stay with Tally to treat her, to help her. And they didn't go after Rodney at this point. But of course, at this point, the police have no idea who they're dealing with. But when the police do search the apartment, they did find some ID cards. So they do know Rodney Alcala's name now so they can get it on the database because he does become a wanted man. But what is just so disturbing is in Rodney's apartment, they find lots of photography equipment but also a load of photos of girls, of young women and I think it was at this moment that the police and the authorities truly realize and especially given the crime that he's just committed against Tally, they're probably thinking oh crap this man is dangerous and he is a real risk to girls and young women. So after Rodney's little close encounter with the police, he did go on the run. He actually fled to New York. And once he was in New York, he adopted a new name. And that was the name John Berger. There's so many things in this case that are just truly unbelievable. But when he got to New York, he decided, you know what? I wanna go to university again. And that's exactly what he did. He enrolled in another arts program at New York University. And he was just using his fake name and he was an undergrad student again. And what's just unbelievable is that he managed to just study his degree. He went on and studied his three-year degree and nobody knew he was just using this fake name. So he graduated, it's now 1971. We're entering the 70s, the decade of the serial killer. He is now 28 years old he carries on using his fake name and he's graduated and he's like, yeah, time to get a job. So he got a job as a counselor at an arts camp in New Hampshire. Definitely not a good place for Rodney to work because it was a camp for young girls and that was one of his preferred victims. And again, he's using his photography skills as well because not only is he a counselor at this camp, but he also works as a freelance photographer in Manhattan. And when he was a photographer, posing as a photographer, he would mainly target young women. And obviously he was there for quite a while, but what's just so frustrating about this case is that we don't really know what he did. But it is believed that during this period where Rodney was studying at university, when he was working as this photographer and also as the counselor at the camp, that he was murdering multiple women. And it's thought that because the crime rate in New York City was so high in the 70s, that this was how Rodney was just able to get away with murder and just completely go under the radar. But even though we don't know most of what Rodney did in this time, unfortunately, we do know for certain one murder that he did commit. But at the time when Rodney did commit this murder, it wasn't actually linked to him. Like he wasn't a suspect, No one even knew about him. I mean, he was going by John Berger. Like no one knew that John Berger was responsible for this murder. It was only discovered many years later that he was responsible for this murder. And this was the murder of 23 year old flight attendant Cornelia Crilly. She was found sexually assaulted and strangled in her Manhattan apartment in 1971. She was also discovered with a bite mark to her left breast, which would be the thing that actually did link Rodney to this murder in the end, but because of just the lack of technology, the lack of evidence at the crime scene as well, like the police just had absolutely no leads as to who did murder Cornelia at the time but years later and I mean quite a few years later Rodney was finally linked to this murder because of that bite mark because they were able to use dental records and like the bite impression and everything they were able to match the bite mark to Rodney's teeth but like I said at the time Rodney wasn't linked at all to the murder of Cornelia. And it is believed that he murdered quite a few women when he was in New York. He just managed to get away with it and he managed to just carry on living his life as if nothing happened. But the police back in LA, because obviously Rodney is in New York right now, the police back in LA are still looking for him for the assault on Tally. But not only were the police looking for Rodney because of the attack on Tally, but they were also worried about all of those photos that they found in his apartment because they were worried there was going to be more victims but three years have gone by now and they still can't find Rodney so the LA police do work with the FBI and after the three years Rodney is finally put on the FBI's top 10 most wanted and ultimately the fbi putting him on the top 10 most wanted was what led to him being caught so one day two girls from the camp that rodney worked at went to the local post office and i don't know if this was just like customary back in the 70s i don't know if this still happens today but this post office had the fbi top 10 most wanted posters on their wall somewhere and the two girls saw rodney's photo but obviously they didn't know him as rodney they knew him as Joe. John Berger and they looked at each other and they were like oh my god that's Mr Berger and the two girls immediately go back to camp and inform the camp director who then did phone the police straight away and it wasn't long after this that the FBI turned up and arrested Rodney and they do extradite him back to California. So you're probably thinking okay so he's been arrested but you said he was going to be on the dating game show like where does that fit in these stories are never that straightforward are they because this is where this story should end but it doesn't unfortunately this has become a common theme hasn't it in these videos that it just seems that the worst People seem to worm their way out of everything. They find loopholes. So, Rodney is initially arrested for his attack on Tally because even though they're suspicious of him because of the photos, they have no evidence. They just go with the assault on Tally. But Tally and her family have now relocated to Mexico. I mean, it's been three years since this attack. And Tally's parents don't want to put Tally through the absolutely horrific ordeal of going to trial, of having to stand up in court, of having to testify against Rodney, possibly in front of Rodney. They don't want to put their daughter through that. So because of this, the police are unable to charge Rodney for the rape and the attempted murder because they don't have their primary witness. Which, listen, I know I've studied law. I get it. I know you have to go by the book. If you can't do it, you can't do it. But it just doesn't. Makes sense to me okay you've got that motorist who was a witness guarantee you they would testify you also have the police they walked in found tally on the floor In the state that she was in, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, they technically didn't see Rodney with their own eyes and blah, blah, blah. So instead, they were forced to charge Rodney with the lesser offense of child molestation. And he was given an intermediate sentence, which I had never heard of before. But basically, the sentence means that they have to spend at least a year in prison and then there's no end date to their sentence. And it's up to a parole board to decide when they should be released and when they have been rehabilitated and Rodney being the very charming narcissistic sociopath that he is, managed to convince the parole board that he was rehabilitated. Rodney only ended up spending 34 months in prison before the parole board decided that he was rehabilitated. He was no longer a danger to society and he was released. And they couldn't be more wrong. So it's 1974 now. Rodney is back on the streets. He's now 31 years old. And again, he manages to get another job as a photographer and i seriously don't know i just oh my god why how why Like i know it's the 70s and stuff but surely they do background checks at least basic ones however as completely predictable rodney didn't spend too much time out of prison it was actually only two months before rodney was back in prison and you want to know what he did he kidnapped a 13 year old girl i mean of course he did What did you all expect? So he kidnapped this 13 year old girl. He then took her to a park and he forced her to smoke marijuana. And Rodney was spotted by a park ranger doing this. And thankfully he got caught and he was rearrested. And I just hate to think of what he was planning to do. I mean, I think we all know, but trying to lure a young person with drugs or alcohol is actually really common. And that's exactly what he did, but he was caught and he was sent back to prison. Again, don't know why he was given an intermediate sentence again, this time only spent spending two years in prison which it's like really did you not learn your lesson the first time he's basically committed or at least tried to commit the exact same crime he's kidnapped a young girl God knows what he was planning to do with her. I mean, this just clearly shows that he wasn't rehabilitated and he is able to manipulate people into thinking that he is when he isn't. It's like, why can't people learn their lessons? There is just no doubt in my mind that he was planning on killing this 13 year old girl. No doubt. I just wanna know why the parole board thought with his history, He should be released after two years. So Rodney is back out of prison yet again. And Rodney goes to his parole officer and asks him if he can travel to New York to see his family. And believe it or not, the parole officer lets him. So Rodney, now in his early 30s, goes back to New York for a few months in 1977. And it is believed that during this period when Rodney went back to New York... He went back to doing exactly what he's unfortunately best at and he carried on murdering multiple women. But again, he was able to just go unnoticed, go under the radar and commit these murders and none of them being linked back to him. There are even articles that are about Rodney Alcala that believe that Rodney was the worst serial killer that New York City has ever ever seen. But he just went uncourt. He went under the radar. And again, during his visit in 1977, the crime rate was still high. It was actually higher in 77 than it was in 71 when he was first there. And it was during the period in 1977 that Son of Sam was out and about. And it was the son of Sam that was grabbing all of the headlines and getting all of the attention. And again, we only know of one murder that Rodney definitely committed during this few months in New York. But again, like the first murder in New York, it wasn't linked to Rodney until years later. So during the summer of 1977, a woman named Ellen Jane Hover went missing. And this was a pretty high, profile case because Ellen was the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. So those were the kind of circles that her and clearly her family ran in. So you can imagine this case did gain a lot of attention. And when investigators were looking into the disappearance of Ellen, they saw that she had a diary, they looked into it, and she did make an entry for the day that she went missing. And in that entry, she said that she was meeting a man for lunch named John Berger. And this is finally, when investigators linked the name John Berger to Rodney Alcala. But at this stage, they have no evidence. They haven't even found a body of Ellen. She's just missing right now. So even though that they know, oh, John Berger is not actually a real person, it's actually Rodney Alcala, who has been to prison for other crimes, they can't convict him of anything because they don't have any evidence. But then it was nearly 40 years after this that Rodney actually did admit to this murder. So after his few months in New York, Rodney, for whatever reason, decides that he wants to go back to L.A. and he applied as a typesetter for the L.A. Times and he got the job. He even applied under his actual name. He wasn't pretending to be John Berger anymore, he applied under Rodney Alcala who has a criminal history for child sexual assault. Rodney also works as a freelance photographer, just like he did in New York, which truly just creeps me out. And it is thought that when Rodney returned to LA in 1977, it's believed that it was at this point that Rodney went on his worst Killing spree yet It is thought that between 1977 and 1979 that he killed approximately a hundred. People and his total victim count could be as high as 130. And, like I said right at the very beginning of the video, Rodney uses his photography skills in an extremely creepy way. Photography was basically like a huge part of Rodney's MO. Rodney would approach young women and girls on the street, he would introduce himself, he would say that he is a photographer, and he would try and charm them and say how attractive they were and say that they could be a model and that he would like to take their photo, which just truly just makes my skin crawl. If anyone approaches you and says, can they take a photo of you? Say no. He would then offer to take them to different locations. So he could take photos of them like, on set, like in different places and stuff. And oh God, it just, oh, it just makes my skin cool. It just is disgusting. However, once Rodney was able to lure these women and young girls to these different locations, this is where he would rape them and then strangle them. But he wouldn't strangle them like until he killed them. He would strangle them until they would fall unconscious. He would then bring them back round and he would keep repeating this however many times he wanted to get his kick out of it until he eventually murdered them. He would also bite some of his victims as well, which we obviously discussed during that first murder in New York. He would just murder them in such a sick, sadistic, horrific way. And Rodney's victims had quite a wide age range, which is kind of rare. For a sexually motivated criminal like Rodney is, some of the girls that he would target were as young as eight, just like Tali Shapiro was. And then some of the other women would be late 20s. And obviously late 20s, still incredibly young, I'm not saying that. But when you compare late 20s to an eight-year-old, that is quite a wide range. And that is just so strange for a sexually motivated offender like Rodney is. Normally they have a specific type. But again, even though he was committing so many murders, Rodney just got away with it. LA also had a problem with serial killers. I feel like everywhere did in the 70s. And during this period, this is when the Hillside Stranglers were at large. And I don't know if Rodney is just getting really lucky with these other serial killers out on the loose. It's just like, how did he keep managing to go under the radar for so long? And what is just a weird little link between Rodney and the Hillside Stranglers is that one of Rodney's victims was actually thought to be a victim of the Hillside Stranglers. And what is probably even stranger is that Rodney was interviewed as a suspect not for his own murders or anything like that. We know that he's going completely under the radar for his own murders. He was interviewed as a suspect because the police thought that he might have been one of the hillside stranglers. It's like the police are interviewing a serial killer because they think he's a different serial killer but he's still a serial killer they just don't know it yet. In the end though, he was ruled out as a suspect in the Hillside Strangler murders because there was just no evidence linking them to him. And then just one of the strangest things about this case is that Rodney actually made it onto the TV. He ended up as a contestant on The Dating Game Show, hence the name of this case. And when he appeared on the show, it was 1978, which was in the middle of his killing spree. Thank you and welcome once again to The Dating Game. time to meet our first three eligible bachelors for game number one. And here they are. Good luck gentlemen. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. And I truly just don't know how this man is able to do things like this when he's a registered sex offender. Like, I just don't get it. He's a sex offender, yet he's been accepted on a show where he may win a date with a woman. It's it's like really, seriously, why aren't you doing your background checks? And his appearance on the show, I mean, it's no surprise, is it? But it truly is one of the creepiest things I think I've ever seen, ever, like on a TV show. And we're gonna start by having them say hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. What's wrong with uh, morning, afternoon? Well, they're okay, but night times when it really gets good. Then you're Mm. really ready. I'm a drama teacher, and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it. Come on, over here. Serving you for dinner. Oh. What are you called, and what do you look like? I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. <laughs> And Cheryl, we have reached the moment of truth, as we call it. You've heard from The Bachelors, you got some great dramatic presentations, some good answers, but now I'm going to ask you a question. Will that date be Bachelor number one, Bachelor number two, or Bachelor number three? Who gets the dates? Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one, Bachelor number one, all right. And somehow, as you've just seen, Rodney managed to win, like, how? But backstage, Cheryl actually got to meet Rodney face to face and he creeped her out. Have fun playing tennis. Thank you. Rodney, thank you. Okay. You can go relax, meet each other, say hello, get acquainted, and And she actually spoke to the producers and asked them, like, can I get out of this date? Like, do I actually have to do it? And she just point blank refused to go on the date, which ultimately was probably the best decision she could have ever made, because I think we all know what Rodney was planning. Ultimately, the date didn't go ahead. Cheryl was completely fine. Uh, She was probably very creeped out but she was fine. So like I said, Rodney was right in the middle of his killing spree when he was on the dating game show and his killing spree carried on for an extra year after the show. But eventually after so many years of just getting away with murder, Rodney was finally caught, and this all started with the murder of 12-year-old Robin Sanso. So on the 20th of June 1979, Robin had arranged to spend the day with her friend Bridget, and they had arranged to spend the day at Huntington Beach, which is just outside of LA. Whilst the two were at the beach, they were approached by a strange man with a camera, asking to take their photo. And of course, this was Rodney. And Rodney, as always, is just being super creepy. He's focusing on Robin. Clearly, he has targeted her for whatever reason. And he's being really creepy towards her, telling her how pretty she is, telling her that she could be a model. He's also touching her leg when he's saying this. And this was just really creeping the two girls out. Bridget did not like this at all. And they did manage to get away and flee to Bridget's house. But unfortunately, the story Ruth Robin doesn't end there. Later on that same day, Robin did have to leave Bridget's house because she had dance class but she left alone. And sadly, Robin never made it to dance class. So as soon as the police have been informed that Robin is missing, they go to Bridget's house and ask her about anything that could have gone on, like who could be responsible for this. And Bridget tells them about this strange man that approached them on the beach. And Bridget was able to give a pretty accurate description of what Rodney looked like, Uh, and the sketch that was made from her description is pretty spot on. Like normally these sketches can be a little bit dicey. Like most of the time they don't really look like who they're supposed to look like. But this one is pretty spot on. And it would be this sketch that ended up being the downfall of Rodney. They did broadcast this sketch on the TV. And can you believe that the motorist, if you remember way back at the beginning of the story, the motorist that basically saved Tully's life, the one that followed him in the car, the one that reported him in the first place, this same motorist, saw the sketch on TV and phoned up and was like, uh, hello, we had dealings with him like 10 years ago. And I can't believe what are the chances that he's actually watching the TV at the same time that that sketch is being broadcast. I mean, wow, what are the chances? But also that motorist is a good Samaritan. Like truly they are. But also I just feel like it's karma, isn't it? Like that motorist was determined to get Rodney. But very sadly, before the police were able to arrest Rodney and save Robin, they did learn that he had murdered her. And that is because Robin Sanso's remains were found by a park ranger on a mountain range that was around 40 miles outside of LA. And I hate to even say this because it's so horrible to even think about this, but there was only a skeleton left because animals had completely ravaged her body, which is just so... It's so heartbreaking. So obviously this wasn't just a kidnapping case now, this had turned into a murder case. And thankfully the police did manage to track down Rodney Alcala and they did arrest him. So now the police had arrested Rodney, they are trying to build a case against him because they do not want to let this man go again. They do not want to let him find a loophole and worm his way out of prison again. So when they're trying to build up a case against him, they find out that Rodney had rented out a storage unit in Seattle, Washington just a few days before he was arrested. Basically, Rodney had seen his sketch on the TV, knew that his time was up, gathered every bit of evidence and trophies that he could, and he put them in this storage unit hoping that the police wouldn't find out, wouldn't find all of this evidence and wouldn't find his trophies. But thankfully the police did find out about this storage unit. They went to the storage unit and what they found was disturbing. That's the best way I can describe what they found. They found thousands and I'm literally talking thousands of photos of young girls and women and these were all the photos that Rodney had taken of his victims but also potential victims. The police also found multiple pairs of earrings and it turns out that these earrings were trophies. He would take the earrings from his victims obviously if they're wearing them and one of the pairs of earrings that they found did belong to Robin Sanso. So in 1980, Rodney was taken to trial for the murder of Robin Sanso. Of course, we know that he has committed many more murders. The prosecution knows this. Pretty much everyone knows this. But there just isn't enough evidence right now to take him to trial for other murders. So they just have to take him to trial for the murder of Robin. And at the trial, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. But the story, of course doesn't end there. Four years later, his conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court. Why Supreme Court? Stop butting in. And this is because the jurors in Rodney's trial were improperly informed of his prior sex offenses. So annoying. So Rodney had to go to trial again, second trial, for the murder of Robin. And again, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. But... I can't believe this. (laughs) Why? 15 years later, after this second trial, his conviction was overturned again. And this was because of an issue with one of the witnesses in the second trial. It's like, oh my God, how lucky is this man. So it's now 2003. Like how did we jump that far ahead? He should be in prison. It should be dealt with. But no, we're in 2003 and he's going to trial for the third time for the murder of Robin Sanso. And I cannot even imagine Robin's family having to go through three trials. So the prosecution are preparing the case again and this time they decide, you know what, We're not going to let him get off this time. We're not going to just get him for the murder of Robin. We're going to get him for as many murders as we can. Because they knew that there were other victims out there. All they needed to do was find them and then link them to Rodney. And this is when a few unsolved murders were finally linked to Rodney. Using DNA evidence, which obviously they didn't have, back when Rodney was initially arrested but using the earrings that they found in the storage unit they linked Rodney to the murders of Jill Barkham, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb and Jill Parento. And Jill Barkham by the way was the victim that initially was thought to be the victim of the Hillside Stranglers and it wasn't until years later that DNA proved that it wasn't the Hillside Stranglers, it was actually Rodney Alcala. All of these women were murdered in California between the years of 1970 and 1979. So along with Robin Sanso, Rodney was being charged with five murders in this third trial. And during the trial, Rodney actually decided that he was going to represent himself because he's a narcissist, basically. If you decide that the death penalty is appropriate punishment, You shouldn't feel too good about it. And his behavior, ugh, so annoying. He's so arrogant. He spent five hours acting as both interrogator and witness. He was using different voices. He was going back and forth. He was just using this as a stage. He just wanted to perform. He wanted attention and he got it. And in just an absolute horrible twist, this should not have happened. This should not be allowed. Robin's mom was called to the stand and she was interrogated by Rodney Alcala. Like how, how do they let this happen? Like how have they let the person that murdered her daughter interrogate her? No testimony from anyone other than Mrs. Frazier that Robin's ears were pierced. Uh, None of her friends were aware of that. Uh, They were unaware of her wearing earrings. And uh, Mrs. Frazier had plenty of opportunity to provide you, the jury, with a picture of Robin wearing earrings. She stated on the stand that she had pictures of Robin. And if Robin, like she says, uh, wore earrings all the time, that was her habit, then there should be some earrings some pictures with and I truly don't know how she did it I, I don't know how I don't know how she did it I don't and by the time this trial ended as well thankfully Rodney was found guilty again and he was sentenced to death and this time the conviction stuck and it wasn't overturned. And shortly after this trial, prosecutors in New York also wanted to charge Rodney with the murders of the two women in New York that we've already discussed in this story. So that was Cornelia Crilly and Ellen Jane Hover. But because Rodney was already on death row, they decided that they weren't going to pursue it for whatever reason, and they didn't actually ever go to trial for those murders. And Rodney was never convicted for those two murders, but we know that he did them. The police also released 120 of the photos that they found in Rodney's storage unit because they wanted to see if there was any more missing people, any more victims that they could link back to Rodney. The police were unable to release 900 of these photos because they were too sexually explicit and in the weeks after the photos were released 21 women came forward to identify themselves And very sadly, six families came forward and said that they did recognize one of their family members that did go missing years and years ago and that they have never seen again. From releasing these photos though, the police were able to bring another murder charge to Rodney. In 2013, a woman came forward and said that from the photos, she recognized one of the women in the photo. And she said that the woman that she recognized was her sister Christine Thornton. The photo showed Christine on a motorbike in a desert. Christine disappeared in 1977 but her body was not found until five years after this and up until this point her killer had never been found. Following this the detective that was working on Christine's case went to pay Rodney a visit. However Rodney at this point is in his 70s. His health is declining. He's not in good health at all. So questioning him wasn't the easiest but when detectives showed Rodney Christine's photos he reacted in such a creepy way. He like took the photo and he slowly like outlined Christine with his finger and then he started tapping on the photo. It was just so creepy and the detectives could just tell that he was reliving the crime i mean i understand that they've got to solve these murders but i really hate that he would have loved that he would have loved having that photo of christine and reliving that murder because the photos to rodney are his trophies as well as the earrings rodney admitted that he was the one that took that photo of christine but he didn't actually admit to the murder but again We know that he did. But even though he didn't admit to the murder, they were still going to try and take him to trial for it. And it did take them a few years to build up their case. And it's 2016 now. They want to take him to trial for the murder of Christine. However, in 2016, Rodney's health was just declining rapidly. And he was just too ill to stand trial. So again, he was only charged with Christine's murder. He wasn't actually convicted for it. So in the end, Rodney was only ever convicted for five murders. But we know for certain that he definitely committed eight. But authorities think that he could be responsible for up to 130 murders. And if he was linked to this many murders, this would make Rodney Alcala the most prolific serial killer in the U.S ever. And normally I'm quite skeptical when numbers like that are thrown out there, but in the case of Rodney, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying that he killed 130 people because that does seem like a lot, but with Rodney and how he operated, I wouldn't be surprised. And then on the 24th of July 2021, Yes, literally last month. Rodney Alcala died of natural causes. He died at the age of 77 whilst he was awaiting the death penalty. And he passed away in none other than Corcoran prison, which you will know all about if you watched my Jamie Asuna case. And something that I just found, I don't know, is it karma? I I don't know, (laughs) like, I don't know. It's definitely not a coincidence, but he died on the 24th of July, And the 24th of July was the date that he was arrested for the murder of Robin Sanso, And I just don't think that that is a coincidence. So that was the case of Rodney Alcala, AKA the dating game killer. And it's just really scary to think how many victims this man could have possibly had. So like I said at the beginning, this is definitely somewhat of an infamous case. And because of that, it has now been announced that a movie is being made about it. So yep, apparently there is a film going to be called The Dating Game and the story will mainly focus on Rodney Alcala's appearance on the episode of The Dating Game. And the film will apparently star Anna Kendrick and she's going to play the role of Cheryl, who was of course the contestant who had the very unfortunate experience of winning that date with Rodney. There is no release date for the film yet. I just saw that it's in pre-production. I suppose there's actually a chance that it will never get made, it will never make it to the screen, but there are a few articles talking about it and it seems like there's a lot of people trying to make that film work and I'll definitely be interested in, in watching that film and seeing more about Cheryl and the whole dating game and her experience and everything. But anyway, my heart really does go out to all of the families of the victims involved in this case, including the families of Rodney's unidentified victims. So many people have lost someone to Rodney Alcala and may not know about it to this day. And to this day, over 100 photos of the women that were released remain unidentified. But there is still hope that more cases can be to Rodney. Hopefully, some more victims can be identified and help get the family's closure. But the only way that this is going to be solved is with the public's help. So I'll leave a link in the description of this episode to the website where you can see all of these photos of these unidentified women and just take 10 minutes of your day, go look at the website, go look through the photos, see if there's anyone that you recognize. Share the website with everyone you know. The more people that see these photos of the unidentified women the more likely that these cases, these women will be identified and the families will finally get closure. And I know it's going to be hard because Rodney Alcala has now died, so I don't know how easy it will be to link Rodney to the disappearances of these unidentified women, but you never know. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup, and I would love it if you could leave a five-star review if you enjoy the show. In the meantime, if you you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one.